Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the co-founder of Metadata, Gil Alouche. Gil's story is one that illustrates the perfect synthesis between software engineering and damn good marketing skills, all built on the foundation of an entrepreneurial eye for the world. Thanks to a reputation for getting startups off the ground in record time, Gil found himself at a conference and when asked about his latest venture, a B2B software based on optimizing campaign experimentation into revenue-driven results emerged. The only caveat, that company didn't exist yet until Gil took the good responses he received and got to work on Metadata, which is now one of the fastest-growing companies offering innovative ways to turn big data into even bigger results fast. Metadata is growing like crazy, so Gil, let's get right to it. Man, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Drew. I'm really excited. Me too, man. I, 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 we could start so many places, but I'm going to let you choose where to start. We mentioned a little bit of the origin story uh, for this company in the intro, but in, in your own words, how do you remember? How did we get into to this? The story is true. You know, my One of my latest marketing hires, Mark, told me that we should play off my founder story more because it's an authentic story yeah. and it's truly the way it started. So you know, I'm a software engineer, like you said. I came to the U.S. Um, in 2007 to do my MBA and with the dream of starting a company, the, the classic dream. I uh, spent two years uh, paying a lot of money for the MBA school and then spent a decade uh, pay, you know, paying it back as well as uh, <laughs> learning how to do marketing. I spent almost a decade in marketing. And I realized that I have a big advantage uh, in marketing being a software engineer because I'm a techie, I'm a quant. Uh, and B2B marketing is definitely a technical quantitative work. Uh, and so I, uh, I, I, I did three stints as a VP of marketing. At some point, I became a consultant and I was brought into this, uh, it was Bessemer Venture Partners event, I remember. And uh, yeah, I was talking to like maybe 20 CMOs and they, I was telling them about experimentation and how to use data to run campaigns and, and everyone's jaw just dropped and they're really excited about it. And I was, shit, I didn't realize this is like something unique. You know, I thought that <laughs> yeah. ma many engineers do this. Uh, but once I realized there is so much demand, uh, more and more people started asking me like, what are you doing? Are you doing some consulting? And I told them, well, actually, I, I started a company uh, around. They told me, oh, great. What's the company name? And I was like, well, you know, it's still stealth. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> at the break, I went on LinkedIn. I just put immediately like founder stealth mode because I said, like, if I'm not doing it now, I'm not going to do it ever. So I'm just going to go and, and take the, the step now. And it's been a, a cool journey since. Wow, man, that is so neat. Has that, let me just back up a little bit. So what I hear there is this idea of almost testing an idea first and then building out the solution had was that something that had already kind of been in your your kind of mode of thinking in business and it just got really um expressed in that moment or what yeah it it exactly that's exactly right so i was i'm a big fan of the lean startup methodology where you don't sit in a room for a year build up build a software that maybe no one cares about and release mm. it uh too late basically instead you test out hypothesis and trying even to like 
to, to prove them wrong. And if you can't, then you know you have a business idea in front of you. And so that's how, that's how I started metadata. Experimentation is something that I'm a big fan of in general. It's kind of the essence of, of metadata as a company and the essence of metadata as a technology. Uh, it's proven to be a, a good way of figuring out what works and what doesn't. Experimentation? Mm-hmm. Interesting. How, how has that found its way into, like you said, it's been at the essence of metadata. Tell me, what, what does that look like? How does that express itself? In so many ways. I mean, the technology itself that we have pairs together two components. One is data. So making sure that you never run campaigns, marketing campaigns against the wrong companies or the wrong people within the company. So you never spend a dollar, waste a dollar of your budget or a minute of your time on the wrong company or the wrong person. The other part is experimentation. Like we don't know what's going to work, what doesn't, you know, we don't know what creative is going to work on what channel, what audiences, what content is going to be, you know, good campaign types and so forth. We have no idea. And neither does this, the marketer. Uh, but what we propose is a piece of software that experiments. Instead of trying to bet on like five or ten concepts, like a Don, you know, like Don Draper from Mad Men, you know, they, yeah, yeah. he comes up with like the best ideas and just present them, then boom, closes like a twenty million dollar deal. We're not like that. Uh, instead, there are thousand possibilities to campaigns that you could run, and we built a piece of software that actually goes through all thousand ideas quickly eliminates maybe 850 of them super quick because it, it identifies that this is not going towards the right trajectory, but then it, it hones down and fine tunes into the 40, 50 campaigns that are best performing hmm. and essentially puts more budget and, and more power into those. How in the world do you have the experiment for that many, for that many things, right? I mean, like do you have to build out MVPs in a sense, like, for 40 different types of marketing campaigns or how does that work? Yeah, you basically have six variables in, in marketing campaigns. There is the audience you run the campaign against, both in the list of companies and the people within those companies. And we actually let our customers preview. You actually get to see the people and the companies you're about to market to before you spend a dollar of your budget on them. Wow. And then there's a channel like let's say LinkedIn or Facebook, there's right. a campaign type. It could be like a conversational ad. It could be a sponsored update, what have you. There's the creative, like the, the color of the button, the call to action, so on and so forth. There is the content, uh, like it's an ebook, a white paper, what have you. And then there's a budget. And so all of these things go into the mix of what a campaign is. For us, if you have 10 pieces of content, 10 pieces of creative, five segment of the audience as you're going after a list of target accounts, a list of companies using your competitive technology, so on and so forth, and maybe two channels, boom, you already end up with a thousand possible permutations. The software, because it executes for you, it doesn't ask you to execute. It does execution for you. It actually connects to the Facebook, to the LinkedIn, to the Marketos, etc. Wow. It uses the RESTful API to go all the way to execute the campaign. Then it can execute a thousand X more than you can, because you don't have, there is no click, 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 and you know, done after an hour, you have a campaign. Within 20 minutes, you can have 1,000 campaigns up and running. And then the decision tree constantly checks like a game. Are they performing well or not? And the game is mostly to eliminate what doesn't work. What obviously doesn't work, let's just take it out. Wow. On the content side, sorry, I'm just geeking out on the concept right now. Cool. On, the, on the content side, do you guys create, let's say that you said 10 pieces of content. Would you guys create the 10 pieces of content or do you ask that of the company, hey, you're the industry expert, give us 10 pieces of content you like, and then we use that in our algorithm? The latter. So today 
the companies provide the content. What metadata can do is repurpose some of that content into a new campaign type or into a new channel. Uh, in the future, we will be able to pull dynamic content and essentially put it together based on a few different components that are uh, readily available. Interesting. So what is, what's the data on, on using this versus not using this? Have you guys captured some of that? Like, hey, companies actually use this, their efforts are improved X amount and all that stuff? Absolutely. So Zoom, for example, is, is a customer that is one of our customers. And so you, you, companies that are, that are mid-market to enterprise looking to grow fast, they're using a modern stack and they have digital marketing budget that they're interested in, in using to, to grow their, their go-to-market, to grow their pipeline. The benefits from metadata are huge after like a month or two. So once um, once it starts to be able to select what's working. Exactly. And Once yeah. you went through like a good critical mass of experiments, suddenly you see the system. We have customers who won awards for campaigns that they didn't run themselves, that the AI yeah. ran for them. <laughs> and so that's the cool part because suddenly what, by running a thousand campaigns and choosing the 20 best, you do something that a human would never be able to do. Like who wants to sit down and you just you spreadsheet with a thousand campaigns and day in, day out, monitor all of them and not monitor based on like, followers on Facebook or impressions or clicks or email, all kind of vanity metrics. I'm talking about, you know, performance in terms of pipeline generated, number of leads generated, yeah. uh, dollar triggered revenue, like those kind of metrics that you can talk about in your board meeting. Um, wow. You can see the, when our customers renew or expand, it's all about the money in, money out. You put a dollar into the, your demand generation platform into your metadata, how many are coming on the other, other at the end using the same creative channels and content you already have in your disposal? Wow. Does this work for a smaller company too, or does it, is it really only targeted towards, like you said, that mid to enterprise level size company? You know, we realize that it's much easier. It's possible for it to work for small companies. Like we're a relatively smaller company. We're a series A or we're you know, a little bit under 50 people. But we spend a good amount on digital today. And so a year and a half ago, when we used like a really small budget, like five grand, six grand a month, it didn't really work because there was no statistical significance. There is no, even if it works, you get like 20 leads, who cares? But when you get <laughs> like 300 and the system knows how to use this statistical significance to actually hone down on what works, you start, start suddenly, suddenly start seeing like hundreds of demo requests coming in. And that is very meaningful. So we did find that I would say, Mid-market, even the lower end of mid-market, like Series B companies, all the way to enterprise com companies are a perfect fit. They have all the data there already. They Makes have the systems and the budget. And so it works really, really well. Yeah, because your system, are, it's almost like machine learning, right? Where it's got to have enough data for it to get smarter and smarter and for the results to, to pay off. Is that kind of what you're saying? Absolutely. Yep. And machine learning is, is the confidence rate for the, for the model plus experimentation. You know, in order to run experimentation well, you need to have it's a zero-sum game between how long you're running the experiment and how much budget you have. Uh, and so you have to give it enough fuel for it to come out profitable the other way. Ah, oh, interesting. It's similar to um, even to our kind of business model, my company outside of this, where we've noticed like, man, actually the more, the more money you spend, the better result you get, right? Versus it's, it's similar to kind of like you, pay, you get what you pay for. Like if you only have a little bit, of budget for this. You're only going to get a little bit of data. It's only going to learn so much and it's only going to give you so much of a, a differentiation versus if you got a bigger budget, this can really bring some huge value to you. 
Yes, that's exactly right. And we found wow. the same thing. Wow. Okay, so well, here's what I'm curious is we go back to the, let's say, the moment you clicked publish on LinkedIn and said, yep, this is the company I'm about to start. How difficult and how long of a period was it to take the idea, the concept of using data to really enhance B2B marketing to saying we actually think we have the, the, the product or the, the service that, that's ready to go? <laughs> that's a great question. I'll give you an honest answer. It took us maybe two and a half years to sure. build that little monster because in the marketing technology space, it's a very, very busy space. There are like 9,000 9, companies, I think, in our space. It's a very busy, noisy as hell. And it's very easy to start a company in our space because a marketer, basically, every marketer in B2B has the tenor of about a year and a half to come up with a methodology that creates predictable pipeline for their sales counterpart. If they do, they are queens and kings in that company. Uh, most of them don't. And so yeah. they moved to another company right after. And in that path, in the year and a half, they, many try to find like a silver bullet, like a, the perfect agency or the perfect technology or the perfect data that will make their life you know, easy and they will magically be pipeline waiting for their salespeople. Most of them understand that they really have to put the time and effort into figuring out what works, what doesn't work for their company. So for us, we had to take a really long time building this technology because we didn't just provide the data part. We didn't just provide an insight because we found that the biggest bottleneck is the marketer, the, mm. the, the time to actually take the action. And so we had to build a piece of software that went really, really deep into the integration with a piece of software, with a channel, for example, that we execute so that we can do all the way through the execution. And that took a, a long time to build. We also have a few patents on the way. We have four patents and a fifth on, on the way. We have the biggest database for B2B targeting with over a billion and a half uh, professionals. That took a while to, to put together. But now, once it's up and running and once the machine learning models also are at a very high level of confidence, now it's a meaningful uh, intellectual property. You know, it's, it's a meaningful technology that customers within a month or two can start you know, getting a predictable pipeline from before it wouldn't be possible to do. Yeah. How did you survive both financially and mentally for the two and a half years that it took to, to get that ready? Uh, that's the million dollar uh, story. I mean, uh, yeah, as a company, we had to figure out how, how indeed we're going to wait, not even two and a half years, but actually it took us maybe four years until we really started uh, growing. Um, we used the account-based marketing concept and very well-marketed uh, use case as a way for us to say, look, we're really a, a data and experimentation platform in order to generate demand. But mm. no one is looking. No one puts on Google like experimentation software or demand generation platform. So we jumped on the bandwagon of account-based marketing uh, with companies like Terminus and Demandbase uh, really putting a lot of marketing dollars into it. And we said, we're going to do it best while others rely on one channel to, for, to, to do marketing. And they use very sophisticated attribution models that speak to like impressions and clicks to show results. Yeah. We're going to use our experimentation methodology to actually bring tangible uh, yield, actually bring tangible yields and inbound MQLs. And that's going to be a very different story. Um, 
And we were able to, to show that. We also were very lucky to have a platform like G2. I don't know if you're familiar with G2, but uh-uh. G2 is like, a, it's like the Yelp for SaaS. Like every, okay. every VP of marketing, before they buy a piece of software uh, or a VP of sales or even a VP of um, engineering, what have you, they go on G2 and say like, I want to compare all the best account-based marketing software or all the best load balancers or all the best content marketing software, whatever it is. And they see all the vendors there. And it's all based on customer reviews. So we didn't have the money to pay the analyst firms uh, to put us on magic coordinates and, and talk about us. But what we did is our software did such a good job actually generating pipeline for our customers. And we asked them to put the reviews out there. And then we became the mon- number one. So for our category, we became the number one, not based on an analyst, just based on customers. But wow. that, was, that brought us into the decision table. Every time they were considering something like that, we were at least part of the conversation and we won many of those uh, deals, which is how we, we survived and to the place wow. where we can actually make a stake. Let's go, man. So, okay. So some, a company like Terminus, which I love, I had Sangram on uh, last year and j- he's just a fantastic guy. That, that would have been a contract for your company is almost like a subcontractor for them or somebody that they were using to help them do their account-based marketing. Is that what that, that was so, for you guys? So historically, we were, because we needed to have a use case that we go in and, and compete for business, we would actually find ourselves uh, competing with a Terminus or a demand base. Today, we find ourselves more and more hand in hand with a Terminus and, and Sixth Sense and demand, demand base of the world because those companies focus more on many times the alerts and showing when an accounting surging, so and so forth. And Metadata really takes care of all the execution. So yeah. No company today in the space uses experimentation as a means to an end to actually execute marketing campaigns. Uh, and that's where we think as a company is the, where the biggest bottleneck is. And so if your company needs to build demand, a constant, consistent demand for a sales counterpart, which is most companies, you either have to hire an agency, you hire an army of campaign managers for your company, or you can use a piece of software like Metadata, grow seven, 10X in velocity without having the need to hire more and more campaign managers and demand managers to your team. Yeah. Wow. Man, how about mentally? How did you survive the roller coaster of those early years when I'm sure the ups and the downs and the is this going to work out and you know, what did I do? Why did I do this? How did you how did you survive that mentally? Yeah, and all the screw-ups, all the all the misfires I I had uh Look, it's a, it's a daily struggle, but this is the job we signed up for. I love this uh, job. I find Metadata to be my personal laboratory to, for growth, my personal lab for growth as a person. And uh, it sounds like such a cliche, but it's true. Like uh, managing your psyche, managing, learning how to work with people, learning how to hire for people who compliment me and, and compliment for my Achilles heels, uh, being able to grow as fast, if not faster than the company, all of these have been my learnings. And I'm very fortunate to have a very, you know, a, a large amount of people who stick to, stuck with me for, for three and a half, four years uh, in, in the business already. Uh, and we're patient with my growth as, as a CEO. So it's been a cool, cool experience. Honestly, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really happy. I chose to do this. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's a very rewarding career, I think. Oh, absolutely. So you, you mentioned something that I think could be big. Uh, the chosen perspective, right? Like there is, here's what I find interesting about humans is we all go through a series of events, but depending on who you are, you give different meaning to them. 
And depending on the story you tell and the meaning you ascribe to things, you can find yourself either very persistent and uh, resilient, or you can find yourself, you know, maybe the opposite where you give up easy or whatever. And so that's why I was curious. Like I wanted to know, like, what was your frame of thinking? And, and it sounds like at least one of them was when you said there's a personal lab for growth that you think about this as a series of challenges and experimentation, and I can learn from this and get better. Is that one of the ways that helps you kind of stay in that maybe more resilient category? Yeah, absolutely. And because I've seen the pattern too. I remember talking to a friend of mine, you know, at the darkest hours when you're like, when you get all the no's in the world from investors and customers churn and your money, you know, I, I, I was one time, I, I already, I don't know, you know, I already had a DocuSign with a signature on getting a personal guarantee loan just so that I can pay half the payroll. Yes. Like it was pretty bad. Yes. Uh, but I also remember talking to, and I'm very lucky to have lots of friends, in, you know, investors and just friends and, and mentors who helped me uh, during the time, of course, family, wife, super supportive. And those really matter because one thing I learned from a friend, he told me, you know, usually when you're like, when you reach that toughest point, if you overcome that point, then you see, you know, then the Holy Land is right in front of you. And then it'll, yeah. it'll happen again. Like six months later, you all again, you get the shit will hit the fan. You'll be like, holy shit. Like, how am I, how do I get over this? And it's really, you, you lose sleep, but you get over it. And then boom, then you just, you just, you know, you just check, unlock the next, uh, the next challenge. So I've seen yeah. it enough times to know it's happening. I also completely agree with what you said. The, the point of view is very important. I think I read some, somewhere that people with adversity uh, in their life, the, you know, they go either, either way. Some yeah. just the, the, the trauma demolishes them and they find themselves, you know, ruined from it and, you know, unable to, to pick themselves up. But the ones who survive actually become super strong because they treat life as, like you said, a series of challenges that yep. just prepare you for the next stage. Uh, so that mindset is, is very helpful. Yeah, man. It's been super interesting, you know, because you'll, I'll, I'll meet someone and, and they're down and out and they've got a reason for it. And that reason is valid. You're like, I get it, man. Like what you went through, of course. But then you talk to someone who may have gone through something very similar and yet they're in a different place. And you're like, wow, same event, but a different, and, and, and this is not to blame anyone who's down or whatever. It just, it was more of an observation. Like I've got to be very careful how I, how I personally ascribe meaning to the challenges I'm going through because they could put me in two really different places. And just like you said, like, man, that idea of what if it's darkest right before the dawn or like, you know, in video game speak, I used to always think about like all the way back to like my Nintendo days. I'm like, you felt the boss right before you won the level, you know? <laughs> so like, don't give up when you're fighting the boss. That's where you get the reward and the upgrade and all that kind of stuff. That's exactly right? right. That's exactly right. You know, I sometimes, I know it's kind of weird for Silicon Valley and to me to talk about it, but I find uh, my spiritual belief and, and God to be very helpful because, Same. you know, yeah. So that's really cool. You know, everything happens for a reason. Yep. And when you have that understanding that really things happen for a reason, especially the, 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 the tough things that are not easy to accept, you think like, wait, why am I going through this right now? And, you know, one of my friends, uh, he is a really good friend and he helped me during a uh, tough time. His name is Elian. And he, uh, he told me some, sometime, you know, one time we talked about uh, the next round of funding. He told me, you know, I think maybe we were not even ready to raise that amount. We were not ready for that success that we experienced. We needed to like mature a little bit 
and get you know a little bit you know a little bit more uh, I don't know a little stronger refined. a little smarter yeah a little more refined yeah uh, and then when we, once we're ready boom now okay uh, you know God unlocked that for us like okay you're ready like universe whatever you call it however you want yeah uh, but now now it's uh, it's appropriate now you're gonna get that that level that that you're waiting for maybe not yeah. when you wanted it but maybe when you were ready have you um, since we're on this vein have you ever uh, come across the work of a guy named Joseph Campbell? He talked. He kind of popularized the idea of what they would call the hero's journey. It sounds very familiar. I think so. Hero's journey. Yeah. I definitely heard that before. He's gone now, but he was kind of a cultural anthropologist and studied mythology, religion, story, that kind of thing. And he popularized this idea. Uh, what he called, actually, I have the book right next to me. Oh. Uh, he he popularized the idea of the hero with a thousand faces, and so you can see it's almost like a montage, or what would you call it? Um, a mosaic, right? Or I a mosaic. Yeah, 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 a mosaic of all these smaller pictures that, that form a, a bigger picture, right? And he was basically saying there's this character journey that humans keep talking about. Like, as old as we can record, these themes of stories of, of where a character has this waking up moment where life or God calls them into an adventure, and he calls it the call to adventure. And then there's the t- descending into the underworld where they're tested and things are, you know, up in the air and it's new rules and they become, you know, on the, they emerge after they slay the dragon or they get the gold or whatever. They now emerge as more of their true self, but also as a gift to the world. Like whatever the struggle they went through is now what they give back to the world. Right. And I came across this in the middle of wanting to quit in my entrepreneurial journey, you know, but it added this layer because for me and my faith, all those stories that I grew up and still do read were coming to life again. And I was thinking about like in the Old Testament, there's the story of the Israelites going from Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. And it was these stages, just like he was talking about these stages. And I was like, oh, I'm just wandering in the wilderness. I can't give up now. Like, (laughs) I've got a goal. I've got to go somewhere. And then the story goes that in the wilderness, it was guarded by giants. Right. And whether you think it's true or it's just mythology, I don't really care. To me, it was really helpful to go, of course, the thing I'm going for has giants. I've got to learn to kill them, you know. (laughs) And if I can kill him, I get to have the thing, my goal. I get to have the dream, right? Um, so I don't know if that resonates with you, but that idea of the hero's journey of this, of these deeper, almost like truer than true stories about human beings' journey through life and who we can become and the series of challenges we go through really helped me navigate through that, is I guess what I'm saying. I, I think that's beautiful. I, I didn't want to interrupt, but while you were telling you that, I, I got goosebumps from, from that from that story. I think the 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 protagonist story, yes. having a calling, you know, going through adversity, uh, having a belief in, in the path. And I would say most importantly, again, sounds like a cliche, but most importantly, giving back and having yes. a much greater purpose than just making a buck or just doing something that is more material, like really having a much higher sense of purpose into what the change you want to make in the world that can guide you through greatness. Uh, and it will be like such a north light when you, when you face all the challenges it's like no big deal, you know, it's just another yeah. challenge I have to go through. To well, that's what up. I loved at the end was, you know, at the end he talks about there's a returning. So there's like this full, you leave your old, it's, it's called leaving your world. You leave your world, go through your challenges, whatever, but then you return to the community like Oedipus. Like Oedipus went on this whole journey, but then he came back. And the, the thing is when you come back, you now are a true contributor to your village, to your community and I was able to look at my life and realize the areas that I had neglected to go on my journey, that affected my family, you know? 
it if like it was i was less able to serve them right mm-hmm. and then as i could see as a result of me going on my journey and all the growth that happens emotionally mentally even even financially the gift that that could be to my family to my neighbors to my community and that was the part that really it was like okay so this isn't a selfish journey in the end it's it's got to be more of a selfless journey even though you are personally going through a lot does that make sense yeah i completely i completely agree with that if you have a that greater goal you want to go back and make a big contribution and you don't forget about that while you go through the challenges and the successes not as you know as important is not to be oh, blinded yeah. by the success and all the goodness that comes from it there's a you're going to keep you're going to keep stepping up and see what what is your true calling what is yeah. your true potential yeah i was working with a client so i do i do coaching we haven't talked about that at all but i do like uh professional you know business coaching per, performance coaching that kind of thing and i was talking to an executive the other day and his challenge was the same and it kept it was actually his, his hardest time was during success right he would always be like oh i lost my way in some way he would like lose his way and i said yeah there's this story the story of the sirens have you ever heard of the story of the sirens and he's like no i'm like in greek mythology oedipus is oh, on i know his, yes is on his journey right and he has to cross through this place that everybody knows about but <laughs> few survive and it's this place where these these water spirits cool. Yeah. You know, sing this song that is so attractive that they steer their ship towards them and they crash on the rocks. And I was like, none of the stuff you're going through is stuff that you couldn't anticipate. You know, it's the kind of stuff that traps a lot of people in success. I was like, but Oedipus had to figure out a way that, to go through it. But what he did is he tied him. He made his people tie him to the mast. And then he put earwax in his, his uh, rower's ears so they couldn't hear the song and that he couldn't get free even if he wanted to right and so he was having this big aha like how do i tie my hands how do i just know like greed or whatever the thing is is going to be so alluring but it leads to shipwreck over and over again i got to keep the course you know i'm like man who would have thought a story from like two thousand years ago could be so impactful today but it is right it's those truer than true stories yeah it's the same life that we got through it's funny i didn't hear i i, I knew about the sirena uh, but I didn't know about the Oedipus solution. That was cool. Uh, yeah. I, I, will, I will tell that end of the story to whoever told me that story. But yeah, I, I think the same, to your point, we're living the same life that people lived 3,000 years ago. Yes, technology is different. The game is different. I mean, we made up everything. The whole life that we're experiencing, yeah. everything, yeah. we made all of it up. It's like, it's our invention. It's not the world got necessarily like decided on it, you know, but we're, we're making this, this reality in the way it is. But the feelings that we have, the triumph, the sadness, the family, the, the emotions, all of that stuff is the same. Yeah. You know, we still have oxytocin when we have a first kid. We're, we still need that, that bonding. We still are clueless. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm clueless Completely. about you know, many things, including parenthood, like learning on the go and things like that. Uh, what can you rely on if not your father and your mother's story and your tribal, those, those lessons that teach exactly. you how to handle life? It's like, man, we're so quick to throw stuff like like that out because A, B, or C, but it's like, but what do we have to hold on to? Like, people have been trying to pass on really good wisdom for how to live this life and and how not to regret it and to, you know, I always think about gain the whole world and lose your soul. And I'm like, well, I don't want to lose my soul on this, you know? And and it's just like really helpful things. But I'm curious for you, we'll, we'll get back to your story. When we talk about those challenges, when we, let's look at you as a character, Right. And you got invited into a new chapter. I just think of them as chapters. There's no one story, you know, more chapters. You got invited to this chapter of metadata. 
what were some of those hurdles, those challenges that you look back on? And you're like, wow, that's when I learned this. And that's when I had to learn this. What are just a few of them that come to mind? I mean, one of the biggest lessons for me in this life and Metadata is like a crazy teacher year after year is limiting thoughts is thinking, what can you accomplish? Like, you know, when I was, I grew up in a lesser known town in Israel and my biggest dream as a kid was to be a software engineer. I didn't know any. And I knew that software engineer is a super luxurious, lucrative career. I knew they make lots of money and they, you know, they have a chance of like moving to a different town and like, I don't know, having like success. And for me, that was the goal. And, you know, I went through high school. I did my, I, I started studying for my computer science. I did the army service and I finished. I did my after service trip, like most Israelis, came back, worked as an engineer. And I was there, I was working as a software engineer and I was like, shit, what do I do now? You know, I, <laughs> this is great. And so then my biggest dream, I was like, okay, this happened, this is amazing. I'm gonna now be an engineering manager. And I achieved that in like two years. And then I realized that I'm making myself a big sin by really thinking small all the time. And even with Metadata, I thought, all right, I'm gonna start a company in the US, that's a huge deal. But then I did it again, you know, I thought like, okay, it's just gonna be a small startup, I'm just gonna keep it and then sell it. But then as time goes by, as long as I grow and I have my North Star and all things that yes. we talked about before, the possibilities are limitless. Like you can really, you can see the kind of people that's now come to join me on the journey. You can see like the, this, the potential of this can be humongous. And so I had one of the lessons that I had, I know it's a long, long answer, is to relieve myself from these limiting thoughts. Really believe that I'm the one who can build this successful big company wow. and I'm worthy of it. And the people with me are also worthy of it. And my family is worthy of it. And this is why I'm doing it. And uh, it's been a cool lesson. Wow. Okay. I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. The first time I ever heard limiting thoughts, it just sounded BS and it sounded too ethereal <laughs> and whatever until you get in, you have a self-awareness and you realize how many times you're playing it small and scared when there's no real reason to, like there's no real reason to not bet on yourself or to expect bigger. When did you start to, to sniff those out? I'm sure across your life, but in this season, when did you go, wow, I actually think I'm holding myself back in some of this limited thinking? I mean, it, it keeps, you know, it, it, it kept happening. I think it will always like, there's like, how do you call it? Uh, I forgot, I forgot the, the, the name of it when you're like, when you, constantly thinking that you're faking it. The yeah, oh, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, thank yes. you. Yes. The imposter syndrome is real, you know? Oh, like, yeah. When I started a company, I was like, well, it's not really a company. It's just like myself or another person. Like when it's five people, it's like, well, you know, I only raised like a seed. It's like not really. And you keep thinking like, all right, when is it really a legit successful tech company? Like when I, when I accept that it is, you know? <laughs> and, right. uh, and thankfully I had, I, I, one thing I did well uh, is, I surround myself with good people, starting honestly with my wife, who was a huge believer in me before I was, you know, uh, and we're talking like, you know, I don't know, like really long time ago, like, I don't know, 12 years ago. Uh, and, you know, you have more and more people believe, you know, like thinking, yeah, of course you can do this. Like, why are you even doubting yourself? And they keep telling you that over and over. And like you have advisors and investors who give you money and friends who have been through this and tell you like, oh yeah, you, you're totally going to crush this. Like you're the perfect person to do that. And eventually you believe, you know, eventually you believe them like, all right, shit, this, this probably, this, there is a possibility this is actually true and I can do this. And then you do mm -hmm. it. Uh, and then you, you end up going and convincing other people. I'm, I'm exactly in the opposite position now as an advisor to other 
uh, entrepreneurs. And it's fascinating. The exact same stuff that I didn't see and I was blind to, they are blind to. And I, I have to sit there and tell them like, of course you're going to do this. Like who is better to do this than you? Like you have all the attributes, especially if you went through adversity, especially if you didn't come from success. Like you have the hunger, the appetite, the, the, the grit, right? You say in English, yep. like you have that. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a great advantage. Yeah. Okay. I want to, I want to, uh, that was one. I'm so glad you mentioned that being an advisor, other entrepreneurs, because that was something that I briefly mentioned, or I saw actually in our background notes that I would just love to get your perspective on. It's, it's not that you've just raised your company, but you've been a part of and seen and advised even to a lot of successful companies from the startup phase. And, and so I'm just curious, I know this might be a tough question or it could be really easy, but like, are there any common themes that as our audience are primarily business builders and founders themselves? And, and so it's like, let's play advisor to them for a second. Are there any common themes that you find yourself constantly encouraging people in or helping them see it this way that has helped companies uh, grow faster or overcome challenges? Yeah. Um, there are a few, th there are a few common themes for sure. Look, I, then there is also, it's very subjective, right? Like the, I choose to work with people that I think I can be most impactful for. I have a, I have a, I have a weakness or a, a, it's very compelling to me to work with people who many times came from the sidelines. So you give me like diversity, but not as a virtual, not as a virtual signaling, not for the politically correct version of it. Like yeah, yeah, adversity yeah. because you are weird, but one way or the other, like you are not exactly the classic profile. You're not the right age ethnicity, gender, character, you're a super weird or introvert, whatever it is, like you have something yeah. that is a little strange. I usually, I like that a lot. I consider myself partially in that group. Uh, and so when I work with, with entrepreneurs, and I wouldn't say I'm not yet, uh, I would say like many, I'm maybe like, I don't know, five, six, uh, I'm still in the beginning of, of my path there. But I find that I'm telling them like, showing them that from my perspective and my point of view, from a cynical, objective point of view too, I truly think they're going to be successful. And this is why. Just like showing them that I truly have a belief and then I visualize it for them, that is the limiting thought part where you can unlock just a little bit of it. Come on. That is huge. They just need one person that they believe because you can be, you know, it's like, you know, it's like your, your parents can tell you you're, Yes, you're, you're great, you know, you're whatever. And you're like, yeah. OK, like, you know, you're going to say anything to make me feel good. But there's going to be someone else that some is going to say the same thing that's going to unlock it for you because you really believe they have the credibility or whatever it is that you need to get it unlocked. And so that's I would say that's a big one. I've noticed that. Uh, and, you know, I'm very real and authentic with, with well, in general. I try to be in and but also with 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 those friends or people that I advise to. So when I say Something like that, they believe me. They know it's not just lip service. And that's, wow. a, that's I would say, the big, the big one. The second one is telling them to act, just not, not wait. Come there on. is nothing is going to be, you know, the, the analysis paralysis, like thinking about all oh, what's what couldn't work, like all of that is fine. Act immediately. Like actions speak significantly louder than words. So just go and do, you know, show up day after day, work on your business. If you're working on your business full time, chances are you're going to be successful. You know, if you show up every day to do the work, it's very unlikely for you not to succeed because you're doing the work. Yeah, man. Okay. You said a few things that I love. One, working with the fringe, the side, the, 
you know, quirky or, you know, not your typical. Uh, I love that for, for a lot of reasons, but you said you reflect true belief in them. And what it made me think of is, is the kid who grows up thinking they have a good voice and their parents have always told them, yeah, you can sing. You're going to, you're going to be a country music star or whatever. Right. And then you go to American Idol and it's, it's everyone's greatest fear. It was my greatest fear of an imposter syndrome. I was like, what happens when you really get in front of like professionals? And what if they tell you who told you you could sing? You know, you are terrible. And then vice versa, when the judges do say, no, you have a you have a real voice and you have a real shot at this. It's you can see it's that spark they needed. Someone from the outside who's not their mom, not their dad, not their friend that says, I know an eye for talent and you got it. This is a good idea. I think you're right. I think it can be that extra encouragement they need to keep going, right? Completely. Yeah, you 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 summarized it really nice. That the the how did you call it? The true you gave it the uh, name a second ago. It was really good. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> we were yeah. we were rifting together. I don't we were recording. So we yeah. looked. That was really good. You you summarized it really nicely. I I, I like that. Yeah, that and then true. the other thing too is that idea of acting first, or or at least I call it having a bias towards action. Like sometimes we get a bias towards analysis and you're just too slow and you're not learning the lessons fast enough. Right. And so it's yeah. like, we need to have a, a bias towards action where when in doubt, take an action, you know, as long as it's not a major risk or it's like, take an action, take another yeah. one. Almost like le the machine learning, like give, like, give you more data, right. Give yourself more data to learn from. Totally. Yeah. I think by acting, you know, people like they, they, they try to have like, like big plan before they before they go on their way and like shit, like life happens, you know, while you make plans. Like you don't really know what's gonna happen. Many things are gonna surprise you. So just get started and you'll learn along the way. That's anyway, that's the only way you're gonna learn. So yeah, might as well COVID, get started. Hopefully, COVID was everybody's wake up call to like you can have all your best plans and you still don't really know what's gonna happen this year, right? Yep, beautiful example. Uh, and, <laughs> and and I think that uh you know, we almost died in uh, in COVID in in March. I remember we could see that this is happening. You know, and everyone has a different take uh, about it. But uh, the economical response around it was so devastating. Yeah. And in 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 March, I remember I talked to my team. I told them, "Look, we're going to have to fire a big chunk of our team to survive. Like for the benefit of everyone, we're going to have to fire people. We have to cut costs. Like we have to do all this." And we did. Uh, we didn't wait. We didn't, I don't know how to use the sentence, like hunker down and yeah. stay home. I'm like, no, I'm not going to stay home and wait for things to just like that. Slowly die. Happen. No, yeah, this is terrible. This is not at all how I think you should live life. There is a problem ahead of you. Shit. Let's get out and, you know, do reconnaissance. Like go see what's ahead of you. Then go back to your team and tell them what's ahead and now prepare for it it's better to be proactive and do something that is painful, but still choose to do it and then maybe survive versus just wait for it to come so that monster demolish you, didn't do shit. So now you're definitely going to be crushing yeah. and burning. And that's your job. Again, that's your, your job as a founder, as a CEO, the leader, family man, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Problems are always going to arise. It's your job to go ahead, face it, and then take action. Ah, oh, so good, man. Yeah, what I've noticed, it was my hunch at the beginning, I think it's been proven, is that we know we have three typical responses to danger, fight, flight, or freeze, right? Are you familiar with that, that idea? So like the, when the adrenaline gets going, we're either going to fight the, da the danger, run from it, or we're going to freeze and try to camouflage, you know? Yep. And my hunch coming into it was like, there's only one of those we can't do. 
and that's freeze. If, if, if either fight or flee, you got to pick one. But if free, if you freeze, you're gonna die. And I think that's what we saw: people that were paralyzed to make a decision, even if it was the wrong decision or a hard decision, kind of died slowly, right? But then those who fought through it and kept all their people found a way. Also, those who ran and, and said, hey, we need to reduce our workforce. That's the only way we can survive. They survived and are often now hiring again and bringing back, back in. But it was those that kind of froze and didn't know what to do that were, in my estimation, the most vulnerable to uh, having this take their business down. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, completely. And look, it's... Uh... We've been taught to be risk averse, right? We're being taught many times to let's just like wait it out and see what happens. But I don't think you have the luxury of it. I, I know for a fact that if we didn't make, we barely survive with all the things that, that we did. We reinventing the business, talking to all the customers, all of them, each and every one of the customers. Wow. All them. And yes, making cuts and changing personnel. But, and you know, we also found the resilience in the team that we didn't even know existed. Like, you know, we had all of our salespeople convert 50% or more of their commission into shares. Wow. The entire team took a 20%, including myself, of course, 20% cut. Uh, and then, you know, we brought it all back and then some. Like we compensated all of the people who took, who took a hit and then some. Um, and it made us, you know, much stronger and closer together. So totally worth it. Uh, just one of those challenges you go through. Wow, man. I'm so glad we got to touch on that. Uh, that gave me chills hearing y'all's story. That's really cool. Well done. Hey, well done on you. You captained the ship through that storm. And I know total team effort and all that kind of stuff, but just yep. got to reflect back to you since I'm talking to you. Like, well done. You did, you did your job and you got your company through that. Thank you. I feel very lucky. Really good team. Good advisors. We, we did it. It was For good. Sure. For sure. All right, my friend, let me get you to your lightning round questions so that you can get back all to right. your busy day. So question number one for you. If you could ingrain one uh, message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Make decision, never make decision out of fear, but make decision out of opportunity. That's the big one. Come on. Say, say just a little bit about that. Why, why that? You know, you are facing uh, tough decisions all day long. And if you, you're making those decisions based on, oh, my God, I don't want to get sued or I don't want to lose this or, you know, it's like when you play soccer, sometimes uh, you get a goal in and then you can choose. You're either going to play the rest of the game trying to avoid getting yeah. a goal and then you definitely are losing. And if you're not losing, you're not having fun anyway, or you're thinking about the second goal you're going to get in. Uh, that's maybe a nice, a nice analogy. There are a million others. Oh, that's a great analogy. I, I played soccer as well. And you could see when the team or the coach shifted into that thinking and you know, the game's over, like, yeah. you know, it's over. We call it nine one one. Cause you'd have like nine people back one midfielder and one forward. And you're like, yeah, you're, you're in emergency mode. And, and it's just a constant assault. When you decide defense is your strategy, it's a constant assault against you. Isn't it? Totally. Yep. I love it. All right. Question number two. What is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And what about the worst? Best advice I got from one of my advisors. Um, he told me, Gil, what are you talking about? You can reinvent the business every day. Because he told me something that I thought was right. And I was like, ah, but I don't know if I can do this already. No, we've already been doing this for like a year. Tell me, who gives a shit? Like you can reinvent the business every day. And he was right. And we did wow. the change next day and it worked. Uh, so that was a really good one. 
a really bad one. I got lots of bad advice, but uh, one bad advice was to pay someone less because of the country they're in. And that was a bad, I took that it was like five years ago. I made that mistake mm. and I paid for it and I deserved it. <laughs> you get what you pay for, right? <laughs> I deserved it. It was a good lesson. Wow. I like that. Okay. Question number three, what causes you the most stress or worry currently leading your organization? You know, people's uh, happiness level and performance in the business. So like making sure the, the bar is high for people being happy, performing well and growing uh, as we grow, because as you grow, you know, you need to add, add more people and you have to keep that bar, keep that culture. It's not easy. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's top of mind for me. Yeah, Which absolutely. I'm involved with every interview still. That's, oh, heck yeah. Oh, you interviewing new hires? New hires. Yep. I'm still, still involved with that. Got it. All right. Question number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? <laughs> that's funny. Mark Oregon, my coach, he, he introduced me to that name for the first time. Yeah. Uh, BHAG, we want to be the operating system for MarTech. We want to be a synonym for demand generation. You want to build demand for your B2B company? You're thinking about metadata first. Heck yeah. I like that. It's synonymous. Synonymous with it. Okay. Number five is our fun, creative question. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past, and tell yourself just one thing out the driver's side window, when would you go back? And what would you tell that younger version of yourself? Hmm. Cool. It's a big one. You can take it however you want. Yeah, I will probably go back to my, I would go back all the way to my high school uh, version and tell it right then and there that, of course, you're going to, uh, to start a company. And you just, you shouldn't, I build this whole plan of how I'm going to go through, you know, step by step in the ladder, because that's how, yeah. you know, that's, that's how you sometimes plan when you're risk averse and you have those limiting thoughts. And I'll tell them, you know, you can jump five steps. Like you just bend your knee like this and, <laughs> you know, pull really hard and you can jump five steps at once. And don't be afraid of falling on, on trying or, you know, trying things that, that you think are, are hard to reach. Come on. I think we could all use to hear that even now. Uh, well, but hey, Gil, this has been awesome, man. If you can't tell, I've 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 so enjoyed our conversation together. You got too, me, man. you got me talking more than a host should talk. So thank you for <laughs> for I your really patience. It. it was a very great conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here today, buddy. We hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thank you, founders. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.